journey to scale. Successful innovators can make mistakes. Even though they've learned and built routines and capabilities, they can still get it wrong. Sometimes spectacularly so. Take the case of Toshiba. Certainly not a new kid on the block, but a respected innovator over nearly 150 years. And not just a one-hit wonder either. Its success pedigree includes light bulbs, memory chips, video recorders, TV sets and DVD equipment. They also understand the difficulties in bringing innovations to scale. For example, they're credited with bringing the notebook computer to the mass market with their 1100 series. And yet, they lost out big time when their attempt to put high-definition DVD onto the market failed. And they lost the standards battle to Sony with its Blu-ray system. And several hundred million dollars in the process. Or Clive Sinclair, one of the creators of the personal computer revolution, whose ZX family of machines spawned a generation of programmers and certainly moved the technology to the mainstream. So despite his success with computers, millions of units sold worldwide, he managed to fail very publicly with his later venture, the C5 electric vehicle. Now they're not alone. In fact, there's a wonderful museum of failure located in Sweden, which showcases failures from some of the biggest names in the world. The underlying premise is, of course, not to ridicule these companies, but rather to show that we can learn from failure. They remain successful businesses because they absorbed the costly lessons and revised their innovation management approaches. Now, the examples of Sinclair and Toshiba highlight one particular challenge in innovation, the journey to scale. We spend a lot of time worrying about the front end of innovation, how to create new business models around products and services. Powerful new digital tools and reorganization around open innovation principles ensures that there's no shortage of incoming ideas, nor is there a lack of attention to the teams who are going to create the new. Entrepreneurs are helped through boot camps, incubators and accelerators, and in-house teams have access to various shades of venturing options inside the walls of their parent organisations. But what happens when the project succeeds and that new product or service is launched? If a new idea is to have impact, commercially or socially, then it needs to move to scale. People have to adopt it in large numbers. The ideas need to spread, the concepts diffuse. And it's here, on the journey to scale, that we find a number of roadblocks, potholes, and all sorts of other obstacles to long-term innovation success. It's not easy. That museum of failure has over 100 exhibits and thousands more haven't made it through its doors and into the public eye. This shouldn't surprise us, after all, we're programmed to cover up failure rather than celebrate it. But if we understand what goes wrong, we might have a better chance the next time we set out on the journey. Serial innovators know this. They reflect on the lessons they learned the hard way and apply them in honing their skills at scaling. A good example is Joy Mangano, 
sometimes called the mother of invention because of her track record in bringing innovation to bear on seemingly ordinary household chores. The huge success of products like the Miracle Mop aren't accidents. They rely on her deep and hard-won understanding of how to move things to scale. So, what lessons can we draw to give us some signposts on this journey to scale? Well, the first one, it takes time. Once launched, new ideas often take a long time to have impact. Think about the bicycle. It was invented about 1817 by Baron von Dreis, who certainly had a clear vision for what he was trying to achieve, affordable personal transportation for everyone. But it took another 60 years to make that dream a reality. Or the experience of Frederick Tudor, the ice king of Boston, who pioneered the ice industry, the global ice industry, in the 19th century. His first unsuccessful voyage in 1806 took a shipload of ice to Cuba, where its frosty reception had nothing to do with the product in his ship's hold. It took another 10 years, all his family's money and a spell in debtor's prison before he finally succeeded in creating an industry which in its heyday was cutting and shipping close to a million tons of ice every year. Timescales remain stubbornly long even as technology life cycles shorten. For example, in the field of humanitarian aid, the idea of giving people money instead of food can be traced back to experiments in the early 1980s. But it took another 20 years before this moved to the mainstream. And even then, it took the impact of the dreadful 2004 tsunami to kickstart that diffusion to scale. So, if it's going to take a while to move to scale, then you'll need to do more than just patch your innovation on the head and send it on its way. You need a strategy, a long-term plan for how it's going to happen. Dominant designs matter. Innovation's all about possibilities and problems. It involves finding ways to match needs with available means in novel fashion. And they don't always come together at the same moment. Back to bikes. The need for transportation, for personal transportation, was there for Baron von Dreis, not least because of two bleak years of bad harvests and the ravages of the Napoleonic Wars, which reduced the availability of horses. But the technology to create a working bicycle wasn't around. The next 60 years were a classic illustration of the fluid phase in innovation, where many entrepreneurs chase after the same thing, each experimenting with their solution to the problem, each adding ingredients to the soup. Eventually, it comes to the boil and a dominant design emerges, the configuration which best fits the needs and the means challenge for the most people. Importantly, it's not necessarily the best. Histories full of innovations which were technically superior or delivered more elegant solutions, but were elbowed aside by the emerging dominant design. In the case of the bicycle, Pierre Lalmont may have the distinction of his name on the patent for a pedal-powered machine, but it was William Starley of Coventry who put the dominant design together 
the diamond frame, the pedal drive, the chain transmission vehicle, the thing that we still know and use today. In the same way, Henry Ford wasn't the first car maker. His business arrived nearly 20 years after Daimler and Benz had started selling horseless carriages. And the iPod was number 51 in the race, arriving three years after Sachan Information Systems of Korea had launched their MP Man. Yet it was the Model T and the iPod which became the dominant designs and shaped their respective industries. So the lesson here is one of watching, adopting, adapting, learning with the market as it evolves and amplifying the key features which the market values, not necessarily the ones that you think are best. And it's about system thinking, not just coming up with a clever component. Bringing in the other elements which make innovation work, the value-creating network of key suppliers and key resources, understanding the market and what it actually values, and not least, the financing. Not just the venture money, but the cash flow to make it work and stay alive. Something which another innovator wasn't too good at. Mr. J. Murray Spangler gave the world the electric vacuum suction sweeper, but had to sell his patent to William Hoover because he lacked a basic business model to take it to scale. Again, this is a common pattern. The originator and often the patenter of innovations which have come to be famous is not necessarily the one who brings the innovation to scale. Think about the typewriter. For much of the past 200 years, a key innovation in the world of communications. Now, its origins lie particularly in the work of Christopher Scholes, a printer who developed and patented the idea in 1868. But neither he nor his colleagues could manage to organise the wider business of making and selling it. Eventually, one of them, James Densmore, enlisted the help of a businessman friend, George Yost. They arranged a deal with the Remington Company, who bought the patent for $12,000. Remington was a well-known manufacturer and a distributor of sewing machines, and importantly, understood mass production. It had diversified very successfully during the Civil War into armaments, and so it had the business set up, the resources and the networks to commercialise the idea of the typewriter at scale. Its 1873 machine with upper and lower case became the Model T of its time. So the lesson here is simple. Build a business model. And make sure that the story you're trying to tell has the system behind it to deliver on that promise. Complementary assets matter. A key question which needs to be asked early is what or who do you need to help bring your innovation to scale? It's systems thinking once again. The need to make sure all the bits are in place. Now, a good example would be the innovator who first saw the potential in remote retailing, providing a service for those people who couldn't or wouldn't visit shops. It's a good idea, but to make it work, you need to assemble a lot of pieces of that jigsaw puzzle and make them work. 
Selling's one thing. Capturing and processing orders, arranging for stock to be available, storage, distribution, handling logistics over a large area, and very important, managing the cash flow so you don't sit on lots of stock but manage to get paid for that up front. Now, you might think that was part of Jeff Bezos's brilliant thinking in setting up his Amazon empire. But in fact, it's a model which predates him by almost a century. Messrs Sears and Roebuck pioneered the idea of remote retailing via their mail order catalogue. But theirs was not a single component innovation. They built an ecosystem and they were smart enough to recognise they didn't need to own or control everything as long as they could orchestrate and coordinate it. So major manufacturers and other players came into the ecosystem tent, all sharing in the value creation behind the Sears model. It's what makes the difference between a good idea and one which has significant impact. Thomas Edison's name may be forever associated with the light bulb, but he spent a significant proportion of this time working out the rest of the system into which you could plug it, creating the General Electric Company along the way with its interests in generation, distribution and devices to consume electric power. Henry Ford's achievements were again at the system level. By the height of its reach, the Ford system could create a car from mining the iron ore right through to driving one off the assembly line in 81 hours. More important, he either owned or controlled those key complementary assets. The same approach, building an ecosystem, was what really lay behind Apple's success with the iPod. While the device was well-designed and elegant, it was the network behind the scenes, the negotiation of digital rights and royalty arrangements with the major music providers, which paved the way for a portable music revolution. And it also laid the infrastructure across which the wider smartphone ecosystem built on the iPhone now operates. And it was here that Toshiba misstepped in its journey to scale with the high-definition DVD. It understood about ecosystems, tried to build one, but its choice of partners, including Microsoft, and its inability to get major film studios involved led to it losing out to Sony. So the lesson for scaling is to ensure that you've thought about the ecosystem you're going to need and have in place mechanisms to help build this. Partnerships, licenses, strategic collaborations, whatever. Without it, even the best ideas may fail. A fate which befell better place. A startup so promising it was able to raise over $200 million in scale-up funding. And yet, barely four years later, it had burned through all of that and failed because of the lack of an ecosystem that worked. We also need to understand adoption behaviour. People don't simply accept changes. Instead, there's a pattern in which some are enthusiastic early adopters, whilst others may take a long time to make up their minds. Whether we're talking about toothpaste or high technology machinery, the same pattern tends to appear, and it takes the form of an 
S-curve. Understanding what shapes that curve was the life's work of Everett Rogers, and it offers us some powerful clues about adoption behaviour. Rogers saw adoption in terms of a communication process. And a key point here is that different people perceive the characteristics of an innovation, the message that's being broadcast, in different ways. Whether or not our innovation is the best new thing since the invention of sliced bread is not the issue. It's how others perceive it which matters. Rogers lists five innovation characteristics and these provide us with a helpful checklist to make sure we're promoting the best conditions for adoption. Relative advantage. Can we prove a difference in performance on some dimension? Observability. Can we show the benefits? Seeing is believing. Complexity. Uh, can we present our complicated idea in simple form? Trialability. Can we offer the chance of a, a test drive before we require a full commitment? And compatibility. How well does the new thing fit into the potential user's context? This checklist also helps us understand why things often go wrong in diffusion. Consider the question of complexity. Google TV was one of their less successful ventures and it failed in part because it was perceived as too complex, something exemplified in the remote controller which Sony produced to fit the system, which had no less than 88 buttons for different functions. But compatibility is probably the biggest rock on which adoption founders. Basically, because the innovator doesn't fully grasp the context in which their innovation will work, or not. Sinclair's C5 was technically very interesting, but he almost completely misread the market in terms of its willingness, or otherwise, to pilot a tiny tricycle along busy roads in the worst of British weather. But Rogers' work didn't just focus on perceptions of the innovation. It also extended to the innovator, the one offering the innovation. People trust things which they perceive as coming from someone like them, what Rogers called homophily, and they're suspicious of things which come from outside their world. And of course, they're not all the same. People differ widely in their willingness to take on new ideas. So finding those likely to be early adopters and working with them can help cross the chasm often associated with diffusion. That's something that working with users can really help with. By definition, if users are involved in creating the innovation, it's likely to fit into their world, this compatibility question, and they have a stake in its success. And if the innovation originates from the user's own experiences and frustrations, then it's likely to match those of people like them and diffuse rapidly. Betty Graham was a typist who made mistakes. So her idea for liquid paper correction fluid spread fast amongst thousands of other typists similarly annoyed at the problems of having to retype corrections. And Mandy Harberman's experience as a mother fighting a mountain of washing led her to invent, and millions of mothers to adopt, a non-splash drinking cup for babies. 
One last point that's really important, check your assumptions. Since diffusion takes time, it's unlikely that all the things you thought of at the outset are going to stay the same. Life, as John Lennon famously put it, is what happens when you're busy making plans. So tracking and testing the things that you base your scaling model on and pivoting to adapt to changes is going to be a key skill. Otherwise, you risk the fate of the Bristol Aircraft Corporation with their giant Brabazon airliner. This was conceived as the future of air travel for the post-war years, and it made a lot of assumptions which didn't actually play out so that it never flew commercially. The biggest airplane in the world, but it didn't quite make the grade. By contrast, Boeing made some different assumptions about the same market, leading to the development of their hugely successful 707 jetliner. So let's just summarize. If we want to make the journey to scale, we need to recognize it takes time, so we need a strategy. Dominant designs matter, so we need to watch and pivot around their emergence. We need to think about systems, not components, and primarily build a business model, not simply create an innovation. We need to think about complementary assets. Who or what do we need to help us move to scale? And we need to build ecosystems to support that. We need to understand adoption behavior and pivot around the many messages that our market actually gives us and we should check our assumptions, track and test on a continuing basis. Mm -hmm.